A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. Created by Bloomberg Philanthropies, Bloomberg Connects lets you access museums, galleries and cultural spaces around the world on demand. Download the app to access digital guides and explore a variety of content. Hello, I'm Ben Luke and welcome to A Brush With, the podcast where I talk to artists about their influences from art to literature, film and music and the cultural experiences that have shaped their lives and work. And in this episode, it's A Brush With, Mark Leckie, whose enormously varied and experimental practice sits on the cusp of digital and analogue worlds. Working mostly in video, sound, performance and installation, Mark explores the meanings of media and technologies alongside themes including class and capitalism and personal and collective history. Deeply subjective and emotional, yet seeking universal truths, Mark's practice has made him one of the most influential artists working today. He was born in Birkenhead near Liverpool in northwest England in 1964 and grew up in Ellesmere Port, a town across the River Mersey from Liverpool. He came of age in a period of enormous political and cultural disruption in the UK, which, as we learned from his autobiographical video work Dream English Kid from 2015, made a huge impression on him. The culture he experienced then, from the street fashion of the so-called casual subculture to the post-punk and new wave music he experienced in Liverpool's music venues like Eric's, made an indelible impression on him. He had a slow start artistically. He graduated from Newcastle Polytechnic in 1990, but it wasn't until the end of that decade, by which time he'd moved to London, that he made his breakthrough work, a piece that remains his most famous today. Fiorucci Made Me Hardcore from 1999, which uses sampled footage of dance subcultures like Northern Soul and Rave, alongside other footage including images of groups of casuals on the streets, edited into a dreamlike montage. Music has remained at the core of Mark's work. For his 2003 performance, Big Box Statue Action at Tate Britain, one of his sound system works, he positioned a speaker stack exactly to the scale of Jacob Epstein's hulking alabaster sculpture Jacob and the Angel, and through a sound collage of spoken words, song and sampled music, tried, as he put it, to coax a response out of this strange moot monstrosity. He's also explored film. He was Professor of Film Studies at the Stadelschule in Frankfurt in the 2000s, and among his best known works is Cinema in the Round, in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, in which, wearing a black tie, he delivers a characteristically unorthodox lecture on art and cinematic history and technology's role within it. And whatever his subject, Mark's personal engagement with it is clear. In green screen refrigerator action from 2010, a video and installation that looks at smart objects and how we're increasingly immersed in technology in our daily lives, Mark inhaled the coolant from a Samsung smart refrigerator in order to inhabit the life of the object. This subjectivity is perhaps most profound in Dream English Kid 1964 to 1999 AD, a video and sound collage of what Mark has called found memories, a kind of sequel to Fiat. Rucci. As well as YouTube clips and nostalgic ephemera found on eBay, that piece included both digital and physical props and models, including of Mark's 1990s flat in the West End of London and a concrete bridge over a motorway near where he grew up. A full-scale reconstruction of that bridge also appeared as the setting for Oh Magic Power of Bleakness, Mark's 2019 show at Tate Britain, as a setting for a new work evoking childhood memories, including one in which he claimed he saw a fairy in the bridge's undercroft. As a response, he created 
a hologram using a Victorian illusion technique called Pepper's Ghost of young people occupying the space under the bridge, a spectral presence which carried over onto multiple screens around the room. Increasingly, Mark's work uses this hybrid form of found and constructed imagery. His show in London that opened in March 2022 features two such pieces. To the Old World, Thank You for the Use of Your Body includes footage of a young man deliberately crashing through the glass window of a bus stop shelter, which Mark then built a magical and strange video around. And Carry Me Into the Wilderness uses a painting by the 14th century Italian master Lorenzo Monaco as a spur to explore the isolation and transcendence as the UK's COVID-19 lockdown period ended. As with all of Mark's work, I was aware again of being pulled into the heart of these pieces, subject to their vacillating moods and meanings, the familiarities and mysteries of his visual and sonic languages. Witnessing Mark's art, we're always tangibly aware of his role in its making, his distinctive voice. He's talked about this process and how, as he often says, he gets lost in the paradise of the work. And it's with this that I began our conversation. What does he mean by that phrase? It's stolen. It's uh, Blake. It's the line I got from him. And I think he was expressing the idea of paradise in a much more expansive way than I am. But still, I mean, I don't know if this was always the way, but it seems a very contemporary way of making work now is you, you kind of gather. You gather lots of information and then you start to assemble it in some way. I mean, this is all right. This is what I was thinking recently because Lizzie had to go away. So I was with the kids. This is your partner. This is my partner. So So basically I assemble... And then I build a kind of an environment, I guess, that I can then go into and then close the door behind me. And I'm, I'm in there. I'm in this place I've built. And that's when I enter this kind of like potential paradise, this kind of, it's a very joyful place most of the time. There's always a moment when I make an edit and I, I, I kind of squeal with delight. <laughs> or it may, I just get very excited by it. I'm lost to any world outside of that it's a kind of intensification I guess I guess guess that's what I mean by paradise in that sense it's like I always like this idea of Catholic martyrs that their kind of martyrdom allows them for a particular kind of idea of heaven like a super intensified idea where they're just in perpetual ecstasy (laughs) eternal perpetual ecstasy and it's like I guess I became aware of this sense in, in when I was working on in myself, I've tried to amplify that as well. So I kind of prepare myself for it. And when you say you prepare yourself, do you mean you just within the sort of tools that you're going to use from a sort of in terms of images and sound and all that sort of thing? Or is there a sort of physical kind of structure that you build in order to enter into? No, I don't need a physical structure. I mean, I used to do a lot of this just at the kitchen table. Now we've moved and I've got a little studio. So I have got a space that is closed off from the rest of the house. It's more um, a mental space. I've got my kind of library. I've got my archive of sound effects or whatever. And then I've got access, obviously, to everything online. So, yeah, I'm kind of, everything's surrounding me. And in that, I'm allowed to just get on with it. Because up to then, also, it's a kind of procrastination. And there's a point where I can't procrastinate anymore. So I just have to enter this kind of booth and then say, this is it, you know. And that's usually at the last minute. I remember hearing you talking about Fiorucci once and you said that at some points when you were making that, you got drunk. So yeah. you entered a kind of different kind of altered state. Yes. And how important was that to the way that the work turned out in the end? And when you watch it back, can you say 
you achieve something through that that you might not have ordinarily done, you know? Yeah, I mean, that's a funny one because for me, if I rewatch Fiorucci, it's, I wouldn't say unbearable, but it's, it's uncomfortable because I just find it very maudlin. It's like me basically being a maudlin, melancholic drunk, just feeling sorry for myself. <laughs> and um, and I, I honestly was very surprised at the reaction it's had because I just thought it was very self-indulgent. It's hard for me to tell because it's like I sort of imprinted myself on that with aspects of my personality I don't particularly care for. So it's always it's always a bit tricky. But, you know, I think it's a very morbid piece of work. I think it's quite, or not morbid, but morose. I also think of it as a kind of, it's like a ghost film. You know, it's a kind of haunted video. So those were the kind of thoughts that were circulating when I was making that, yeah. But I was aware that watching your new film, Carry Me Into the Wilderness, there's a moment where we hear you in a state of kind of, you're overwhelmed. Yes. And and so I'm aware that in many moments in your work, we're carried into a different space. You right. Know, in this case, it's the, what you call the wilderness. Yeah. And then, but there is a moment where we ourselves as viewers are, are sort of transformed through the work, right? Right. Okay. Great. <laughs> oh, good. I, don't, I, guess, I guess I'm looking to, to kind of affect the viewer in that sense. I mean, again, it's back to this kind of idea of being in the paradise of the work. It's like, I, I'm just looking to... I don't want to overuse this phrase, but intensify. I've been looking at a lot of iconography or sort of late iconography. There's that, that sort of period just before sort of pre-Renaissance, which I've always liked. Uh, I had a weird introduction to art history. Most people, you know, learnt about Warhol and that. For some reason, we learnt about Giotto and Fra Angelico and that, so, which I'm always grateful for. So I was completely fascinated by these particular series of paintings of the Desert Fathers, like St. Jerome and St. Anthony. And then I guess I was trying to imagine those ecstatic experiences, you know, that just overwhelming sense of isolated from everything else, but then the world just is allowed to come kind of rushing in. And I guess it was a lot to do with coming outdoors after two years in a sense, and just a release, I guess. I think that's what that video is essentially. Well, both of them are, the one with the bus stop as well. They're both, yeah, they're very basic. <laughs> they're, just, they're just trying to get out. But they're enormously complicated. And let's talk about the bus stop work because it's, right. this, this is a piece where you used a YouTube clip yeah. of somebody, or not even YouTube, it was Bants.com or something. Yeah, right? UK Bants. UK Bants, there you There's go. a bunch of them. Could do it, yeah. <laughs> where somebody jumps into a bus stop and crashes through the glass. Yeah. So you took, I think, what you describe as a kind of sordid suburban moment or urban moment, and then it becomes something from which you go on a path and a journey with. How do you conceptualise how you see this sort of random moment and turn it into something that ultimately is art? I'll tell you why, because I didn't think of it as art. I didn't think of it particularly conceptually as well. I mean, I, I did, but I was trying to kind of withhold that. I'd used the sound from that to make a record omitting the, um, the video. It has this incredible rhythm. It's very cartoon-like. You hear this kind of pitter-patter, pitter-patter, smash, and then his friends react. And, and on a loop, it's just... It was a very satisfying loop, and you could kind of close one eye to the kind of self-inflicted violence and all the rest of it. But it, it just as a kind of a sonic artifact, it was very satisfying. So I'd used that before in a record, and then I've been looking to start a, a kind of a summer course or a school. And the idea is that it's a music and video course. And part of the reason for that is that I was thinking this is a way... I mean, when I say I want to escape art, there's, I mean, there's things in art and the art world 
that I find constrictive. And so I'm always looking for ways to kind of escape that. And so I thought about this video as a, I, I thought I'm going to make a music video and I'm going to make the music and I don't know what that's about. I just knew I had the sound, I had the clip and I sort of tried to write a song essentially and I didn't know where it was particularly going to go. I started to think of the bus stop as a, as a kind of portal. I mean, it's a window and spending all this time just looking through and at windows, it was just, that was very obvious. The thing that I found very overwhelming again during the pandemic was this sense of being constrained um, but at the same time the online world expanded right and it, be, and it just multiplied so there's this this weird kind of like back and forth with that that's what I was thinking but these are all very vague thoughts in the back of my head so he's kind of launching himself into another realm another dimension trying to what's he trying what's he trying I don't know what he's trying to do but it's impressive <laughs> and it's very human. That's, that's essentially what I thought in the end. He's just trying to do this thing that I don't quite understand, but I love him for it, you know. There's this balance in that film that's very palpable in lots of your work between a very sort of hard physicality and then the realm of the digital or the realm of images yeah. or the mediated image or whatever. Yeah. And it seems to me that that's sort of an abiding concern, but always translated in different ways in your okay. work. Okay, all right. I mean, to what extent is that a sort of stated intent and to what extent is it just a sort of a natural inquiry in a way that comes through? It's kind of, it's both, to be honest. I mean, I would say I'm determined by images and they kind of engulfed me at the expense of other experiences, I would say. You know, I'm, I'm trying to feel, but, you know, there's always this mediation, right? So it's like if I can enhance or, again, <laughs> amplify that kind of mediation, maybe then I might start to feel something because it has worked before. I mean, I did this performance a long time ago with Catherine Wood at Tate Britain called Big Box Statue Action. And that was about trying to address this big, ugly statue by Epstein that always did something to me and I could never fathom it. And so I set up this sound system to kind of interrogate it, to try and make it speak back to me. That was the kind of conceit. But I realised in doing that that it worked because I realised I couldn't address the statue directly. You know, if I just go up to a piece of wood, to an object and a statue, it's always mediated. There's just there's just too much noise, right? I mean, this is post the show. I kind of realised, or I thought to myself, that if I try and address something or, or apprehend something indirectly, you know, if I again amplify it, well, there's sort of mediation around it. And then I, I actually get closer, paradoxically, to feeling it or kind of experiencing it in some way. So that's become part of what I do. Because I just want to know. I just want to know why these things affect me. That's essentially the reason I make art. They affect me deeply and I want to know why. And then there's also this side of your work where you want to communicate with your audience in a way that a lot of artists either don't privilege in their work or just don't have the same need in the sense that you can find Fiorucci on YouTube. You can find your latest work on YouTube. You just go there and it's free and watchable. And yeah. and it seems to me that that, you, you know, you talked about the sort of constrictive nature of the art. Well, one of the constrictions is the kind of network of the market, right? Yeah. You, you just kind of transcend that. You've got a gallery, you've got two galleries, but you don't need the gallery to communicate with an audience, right? Well, I do. <laughs> I need the gallery for... A number of reasons. And also, you know, in any real metrics, the stuff I put on YouTube is 
insignificant, you know what I mean? I always remember someone putting under Fiorucci a link to a, a sausage-making video, you know, and it was like five times the amount of hits <laughs> I got, you know, it's just like... I mean, Fiorucci does very well on YouTube, and I thought, oh, cool, you know, that's done well. I'll put other stuff on, and then you're just down in the low hundreds, you know what I mean? So, so it's, a, you know, it's very particular. People want something very particular. I put Fiorucci up there originally because... It's not mine in any real sense. You know, I have no copyright claim over it. And I guess most of my stuff, I don't feel like I own it in that sense. You know, I mean, the bus stop piece, I found that. Like, I do try and find who made it. Sometimes that works, but I, I haven't found the makers of the bus stop piece. It would just feel ethically wrong, I think, not to return it there and to say, this is what I did with it, you know what I mean? It's... The new video that carry me into the wilderness that's edited with TikTok filters because I like that aesthetic and I like what people are doing. Let's move on to the questions that we ask all our guests. Yes. So who was the first artist whose work you loved? When I first started thinking about going to art school, the artist I was really interested in was Diego Rivera. I wanted to be a mural painter. I wanted to be a muralist. Uh, I wanted to make political murals, essentially. I think now if Banksy had been around, that's the path I would have taken. Then I got into, do you remember Peter Housen? Yeah. Yeah. Which is like, you know, I don't, I can't say I like Peter Housen's work anymore. And then... So when, Peter Housen was a sort of sorry, very, yeah. very physical, realist painter, yeah. lots of thick impasto and everything yeah. else. Yeah, I had very conservative tastes when I was young. I, I've, I've since become more refined. And then I had to redo my A-level, then I went to foundation. And the art history they were teaching us then was like early Renaissance, for some reason. And Giotto, I fell in love with, with Giotto and his peers. And then Rembrandt. So they're, they're my very early ones. Peter Housen, I think, was an artist who was very dominant in that period, you know, yeah. sort of early 80s. There was a whole school of painters from Glasgow and from Scotland more generally that were sort of very realist physical painters that sort of had quite a widespread sort of impact on art at that time. Yeah, but, but I think it was sort of dishonest. I think I was actually more like... Who's the other one? Adrian Wisniewski, was it? Oh, yes, was, it? Yes, was that, yes. Is that right? Yeah. Who I, who I kind of still, I, I look at that and think, I, I find that still interesting. Hmm. I came from quite a macho culture, and I think that was the only way I could kind of appreciate fine art was by sort of butching it up a bit. Yeah. And Peter Housen was very butch. You grew up in Ellesmere Port, which yeah. is so it's looking over Liverpool, but it's within Merseyside, so Liverpool's the nearest big city. Yeah. And obviously Liverpool at that time when you were growing up was enormously politicised. There was yes. a whole militant thing yeah. happening. Yeah, exactly. So was that part of the sort of inspiration for your sort of political engagement and that muralism, that conservative yeah. muralism? Yeah, there's definitely. I mean, the first thing I remember ever doing is a kind of painting, a, a sort of, I, I guess, a cartoon for a mural of a... An Orange March. The music that was coming out of Liverpool, even all around the country, I guess, was very politically engaged at that time. So, but yeah, I mean, I left school in, you know, in the midst of like a massive depression in Liverpool and it was, it was everywhere, you know. It didn't seem at that age, at a young age, that I could resist 
But you've talked about emerging from that culture as a kind of productive process, as in yeah. because you were sort of suburban Liverpool, you've described the way that you were sort of in some ways it enhanced your observation of what you could see from a distance. Yeah, it's a kind of narrative I tell myself, <laughs> but it, it, uh, yeah, I think it's weird because it's, it's kind of returned to me in, in my later years, a sort of envy of people who seem at ease in the world, you know. And I guess looking at Liverpool people, scouters were at ease with being scouters, you know what I mean? Where, whereas we were like anxious about whether we were ex-scousers or woollybacks, you know. <laughs> so yeah, it was that. It was that. It was they'd just seen people at ease and able to just be and enjoy their own culture, their own kind of experience that you were like left feeling slightly envious of, and and uh, yeah. We're now going to move on to the question, which is which historical artist you turn to the most? And yeah. it seems that at the moment it's Lorenzo Monaco who you've used for this carrying yeah. in, into yeah. the wilderness yeah. video. You've broadly described what that culture has given you, but can you tell me something about how you particularly engaged with that work? I mean, it's on the cusp of the landscape being introduced into art history, but it's a, it's a very made-up landscape. It's, an, it's a kind of an imagined one. And so it's florid and quite surreal. I mean, actually, at times I thought when I was trying to make this piece, it was getting too close to Dali. There's something quite Dali-esque about it. Everything feels a bit kind of melted and soft. I guess that's what excites me about it. It's sort of, it just looks very alien. And these paintings of the wilderness are like about being in this alienated place, this alienated state. So that was the attraction, essentially. And there's that amazing glistering quality that those icons have and you yeah. really zoned in on that there's yeah. this whole sequence towards the end isn't there where, yeah. you, where you have a kind of a screen of gold effectively. yeah so the, the, this interest in icons came alongside when i was looking at bus stops you know because icons are very conflicted in terms of like imagery right in terms of iconography you know there's an injunction against realism against um or, or any kind of depiction right so they're always kind of slightly fighting with that. And one of the excuses <laughs> that they could find to say it's not a graven image is that it's not an image at all. It's a window. So you're gazing directly onto heaven. It's a portal. It's a, a channel of grace. So you're looking into this gold, which is heaven. And it's not a representation. It, it is heaven. And these saints that you look on are looking back at you. I mean, I, th I just think that's beautiful. I think that's extraordinary. And again, like I said at the beginning, of like a way of trying to move around art or it's like trying to think of it not as a representation, but as a direct gaze into this other realm that really excited me. The interesting thing to me is because I love those images too, but I'm an utterly irreligious person, yeah. but I somehow I'm able to be transported. And I yeah. guess to me, it, it seemed like you were trying to work out what that was. And, it, you know, the word spiritual is probably wrong in this instance, but it's something akin to spirituality. Right? Yeah, there's something. That, yeah. And I think it's in the very depiction because it's about light. Everything's suffused with this light and this lightness. You know, they're, they're trying to make the light within, within the painting, within the subject. And, and so I can't see how you could not be taken by them. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're irresistible in that sense. But And then everything gets all meaty <laughs> and muscular. And that's where it all goes wrong. And there's sort of elements of, can we call it CGI? Or yeah. is it sort of a digital animation that you use in there's that? There's a bit of CGI in there. There's a bit. I mean, this is the thing. It's like you can bring in so many different what would you call them media or or techniques and so there's cgi in there there's digital effects there's 
there's cheesy effects. There's, you know, as I'm making it, I'm just reaching for everything. It's not like I have a palette prepared before. It's just as I'm making, it's like this needs to happen or this would be good if this happened, you know. And there's the voice that sounds like a sort of standard art historical kind of interpretation of the image. Yes. But it's put through some sort of AI filter, is it, perhaps? It's just, no, it's just a text-to-speech voice. If you look on on TikTok or whatever, they, they always announce when something's about to happen, there's this device everyone uses where they put on like a little, you know, I went to the shops and this happened and it's always in this text-to-speech voice, so... I just needed a way to introduce it. That just seemed a good way to introduce it. But it also seemed, in the way that you were talking about Jacob and the Angel earlier on, about your form of interpretation being a kind of abstracted yeah. interpretation. And that was a sort of head-on interpretation, which somehow, for me, sort of seemed inadequate, given what else happens in the yeah. piece, if you like. I, I guess I wanted to say that this was a real thing. I guess I needed to give it context. So the voice is giving it context. But then, I don't know if you believe it. It hasn't got much authority, has it? But this, it just seemed enough. It needed a beginning so I could get to the end, I would say, yeah. I sort of preempted your answer to the which historical artist you turned to the most. Were there any others that you might have mentioned? Yeah, the two artists I would say I attend to the most is Mike Kelly and uh, Lutz Backer. Mm. And then beyond that, there's works I like, but I don't know if I'd study them would be the right word, but I'm, I study Mike Kelly and Lutz Backer. I, I want to know how they did it. Yeah. I, want, I want to understand, and, and you know, I you know, I like Velasquez, but I, I don't need to know how he did it. I mean, Mike Kelly, I can really understand because he's such a shape shifting artist. Yeah, yeah, and that seems to me to be something that you are keen to do to never be fixed in terms of how you work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, there's a way of trying to address class without being, you know, prescriptive. That I like about him, but it's always there. It's funny, but there's a but there's a tension there, or a, an anger even. You know, there's mm. a there's a kind of um, or even vengeance. <laughs> and they say, you know, the same with Lutz Backer. I think there's something, you know, at first appears playful, but I think there's need for some retribution. Let's talk about contemporary artists then. Okay, which contemporary artists do you most admire? I mean, I make friends with people that I like, so it all seems quite nepotistic. So I was trying to think of people I'm not friends with first. I find Jesse Darling interesting. Yeah. I, I like Jesse Darling. I don't know. They seem to kind of put me in a position where I have to question uh, or, or kind of doubt. I like the doubt that they bring about in me. They induce in me. Martin Sims, like their work. But then over the last two years, there hasn't been a lot of work. I, so I've turned to music more. And there's people in the music world that I would say... I'm very interested in one of them being Klein, yeah. a performer called Klein. And then the other week, there's someone I knew already who is a painter, Jasper Marseilles, but goes under a, a pseudonym for music, which is Slauson Malone. And I saw them the other week at Cafe Otto. That was incredible. I, I don't know if this is a particularly part of myself that I want to celebrate, but I do get excited about artists who make work that then makes me envious or competitive you know it's a bit ugly but I, and, and I saw that and I was like ooh ooh <laughs> right and so does it spur you to want yes, to get exa- into the studio no exactly yeah it's a sort of spur when I see something really good it is it's definitely a, I mean I can like things in themselves it's not it, it doesn't always have to be but there's particular certain work I guess it's work that's close to mine yeah and uh, then I feel I feel spurred on Arthur Jaffer 
I didn't see there was a new work he just made that has only been shown in America, but it was, I don't know, I kind of felt it from over here. And I, I, part of the reason I felt it is because of, I think, the kind of description of it felt physical. It's a very physical video. It's a video of like these black rocks kind of moving like, like the sea, like the roiling rocks. And the way people were trying to describe it, you kind of felt, which I found interesting, this idea that you could just not see a work, but you can kind of um, gather all the kind of responses to it and say, oh, yeah, I can, I'm, I, I can feel that through the matrix. You know what I mean? <laughs> what do you have pinned to your studio wall? At the moment, I have a picture of a goat herder. I don't put pictures up, but I stopped doing that some time ago. I guess I couldn't when we were in our last place because I was at the kitchen table and all the kids' pictures were up. So I used to do a lot. I used to, when I lived in Windmill Street, my walls were covered in images. I guess now also I look at work on screen. It's not often that I, I need to see a physical image. But I do have one picture of like a, a goat herder up because I wanted this new piece we're talking about to feel very pastoral. So I wanted this sort of pastoral image of a, of a kind of Andalusian goat herder. <laughs> the, the idea of achieving pastoral goals through digital means, yeah. in a way, again, it sums up so much of your interests yeah. around what can technology do? It seems to me that there's both a celebration and a deep scepticism about technology. Yeah. Almost like the work thrives on that tension. Yes. Yeah, definitely. You know, in, in one sense, it's like, I, d I just want to succumb because if because of its inevitability, why resist? These are our new overlords, you know. But in that succumbing, I do find it transformative and experiential, you know what I mean? So so I can't ignore that either. I mean, I, I think this has already come a bit hackneyed, but I think I think it's acute to me because of like the, you know, I remember the analog age. <laughs> so that sense of being very aware of of the change. And it's total, it's so totalizing and enormous. And then watching it kind of how it manifests in my kids, you know, who inhabit this different realm. Yeah, but it's the same with art. It's like, what's the phrase I always like? It, it boasts attracts and repulses. And I, I kind of need that dialectic or that, or that contradiction to make work. It's like, I want it, I loathe it. It frightens me, it excites me, you know, so... I guess a feed off that in some way. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects, the app for arts and culture. The app offers access to more than 60 cultural institutions through a single download. If you download Bloomberg Connects, you'll find digital guides to several museums and galleries where Mark Leckie has exhibited across his career, including the Serpentine Galleries in London, the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles and MoMA PS1 in New York, which held the first comprehensive US retrospective of Mark's work in 2016 to 2017. In the guide to MoMA PS1, you can explore the many site-specific works around the building and listen to artists like Lawrence Wiener and Pippa Lotti Rist recalling their interventions. You can also find details of all the latest exhibitions and events, among them Stage, the participatory installation created by Rashid Johnson, a former guest on this podcast. To explore interactive guides to all the partnering institutions, download Bloomberg Connects today. The app is available from the App Store and Google Play, and you can keep up to date by following Bloomberg Connects on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Which museum or gallery do you visit most frequently? 
Recently, it's been the National Gallery and I guess the British Museum. I went to the British Museum to to look at these. They've got some really nice icons there, so I was going I was going there quite frequently. Before that, I used to go to Chisholm quite a lot. I still still like to go there. I always go to the ICA. It's almost like a pilgrimage when I'm in the West End. I'll go to the ICA. Yeah, so there's sort of two different experiences in a way that you're describing there, which is the sort of looking at contemporary art and then also the kind of information gathering to a degree. Yeah, exactly. The the kind of historic spaces. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. The contemporary one is usually more casual, unless there's obviously someone I particularly want to see. Mm. But the historical is is very deliberate and very uh, particular. Mm. You know, I'm I'm just looking for something. And I literally walk through the British Museum not looking at anything else except what I want to get to, so... I mean, in a way, it relates slightly to the kind of studio wall discussion about so much of your work you've talked about, as you, and you've mentioned it in this interview, about haunting, about the ghostly presences. And I'm interested in what that relationship with the things that you might go and see at the British Museum or the things that you, you're seeing on your screen, is that haunting something which is a long gestation or is it kind of more instant that? Do you grab it and instantly kind of want to involve it? Or does it sort of percolate in your mind for some time? I think probably it's percolate. When I talk about haunting often, I'm, I'm talking more like something I want to rid myself of. So like, I'm not haunted by the icons. I'm just, I'm fixated on them. There's two relationships I have with images. One is to be fixated and excited by them. When I say excited, I mean in the sense of like potentially overstimulated by them. Not necessarily entirely healthy way, very fetishistic, I would say. And then the other one is just to be haunted by something that's just, I just want to be rid of. I'm sick of it. And I find the kind of nostalgia that is both very British, but also a kind of condition of contemporary capitalism. Just that haunts me. It won't let me go. You know, that haunted work is always more, I guess that's my politics in some sense. Whereas the other is just very subjective, entirely subjective. It's just these things do something to me. I mean, the whole brands thing, the whole capitalism thing, yeah. you're not a hectoring kind of political artist in that sense, are you? So, for instance, that green screen piece that you did for the Serpentine, yeah. where you're sort of imbibing fridge fluids. and But, you know, Samsung, the brand, is, is a very prominent word yeah. in that performance, yeah. in the audio of that piece. Yeah. Can you say something about how you investigate brands and what the political stance is, if you like, on those? Because it, it's not, and, and this is obviously a very deliberate thing, it's not obvious to somebody coming into the room that they're going to think brands are bad, capitalism is bad, are they? They're engaging with some with yeah. a discussion or... You know. Yeah, because brands to me are, are like, they're environmental, right? They're wind, they're rain, they're brands, and they've determined so much of my life, you know. But at the same time, brands, you know, if you look at like Fiorucci, which is a brand, you know, that whole title explains it. It's, I mean, I've said this endlessly, but that title to me now means something exploitative. You know, there's something that comes from this exploitative system is then taken and transformed into something more kind of nourishing or potentially even spiritual, right? I read this thing recently. Someone said that the 20th century subcultures they were talking about was determined by by brands, by by consumption, right? By what you bought, what you wore, determined who you were and made you, you know, it spoke, right? 
but they were saying that that's shifted, that's gone. And I think that's true. I don't think brands work in the same way that I grew up with brands, that somehow that there was something you could appropriate or, or incorporate. So I don't really touch brands anymore. <laughs> I'm off brand. <laughs> hey. You know, part of brands to me is like, is about aspiration. And it's something I think a lot about in the art world, because to me, the art world is aspirational, you know, well, and so there's always this drive that is conditioned, this conditioned drive to kind of aspire, particularly, and, and through, you know, the working class channels of that aspiration is through, you know, brands and through um, clothing. And I'm just trying to grasp this stuff. So that's why it's never didactic, because I don't know. I, I don't know what these things are. And I, that's what the work is, is me trying to kind of fathom them. Which cultural experience changed the way you see the world? It's got to be, it has to be music, just in a very boring way or obvious way. I mean, I remember 12, 13, listening. We had one record or two records at home. One was one of those Top of the Pops LPs. Remember those compilation LPs with covers? And it was like a rock and roll one. And I just remember being very excited by that. And then a little bit later, going to the local disco. And they would play American sort of post-disco R&B in the early 80s and being kind of taken by that, being very excited by that. So, it's, yeah, it's, it's music, really. And then I also went interrailing on my own and I went to see the Sistine Chapel. I guess this, this thing about being mediated maybe began there because I couldn't see it. I kind of made this pilgrimage and then it was, I was, it was sort of denied by the crowds and everything else and it was just it was horrible. It was so disappointing. So is this just like like a dream unrealized project <laughs> yeah. to, to put a big box in the bottom of the Sistine yeah. Chapel and talk to that? Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if I consider the Sistine Chapel anymore. It, it's kind of gone, hasn't it? It's like those those kind of huge cultural monuments just seem very distant to me now. It affected me deeply, I guess, going making this this journey and then realizing that it couldn't be seen, it couldn't be experienced. Let's do the music okay. question now. Okay. We'll, we'll come back to literature, but let's okay. do the music thing, as you mentioned it. Okay. There was a really intriguing thing that you, you've talked about it a fair number of times, but I'm intrigued by this piece of music by Aeson, which is called Trip to the Moon, which is trip and then two, as in two yeah. Roman numerals of the yeah. moon. Why is that so significant? <laughs> <laughs> it's actually Trip to the Moon 2, I like. There's, there's about six versions of it, <laughs> and there's one particular mix I like. Because it's, it's basically... The blueprint for what I'm trying to do, it's just taking all these very disparate samples and trying to collage them into a state of transportation or it's trying to excite a feeling, you know, and it works. It's very, it's very effective. And there's a sort of magic to it. I'm not alone in thinking it's like a great piece of work. Mm. There's a kind of magic that I need to unpack and figure out. You know, I played it to other people and they think it's horribly cheesy, but it's, <laughs> but it's not. It's sublime. It's what I was trying to do with the bus stop, basically. You work with this, whatever that word was I used, sordid or tawdry or, you know, something like a poor piece of video and you transform it into something powerful or meaningful, you know. So I like, that's what Trip to the Moon does to me. Yeah. It's like you're working with like cheap offcuts 
and you make prime steak. That's a terrible metaphor, but you know, I don't know. It was, <laughs> but it's it, got this sort of extraordinary thing that happens in the piece, which so you've got the break beats and you've got the speeded up voices yeah. and you've got the 303s. Yeah. And then there's this moment where this extraordinary kind of weighty brass comes in and it's like, it is again like a portal within yeah, yeah, the music, yeah, right? Yeah. Well, the version I like, it uses James Bond theme. Well, it's Moonraker, I think it is. So then suddenly that drops in. That's what I like about it. There's a sort of audacity about it. And it feels very in the moment. You know, it still feels like that when you listen to it. It's like, I'm just going to try this, see if it works. And it does work. And then it's like, back to your original question about being lost in the paradise of the work, it kind of, I feel that off that record. I feel that moment where he put those samples in and, and his kind of like glee or kind of thrill. And of course, your video, Dream English Kid, it's a kind of autobiographical piece. Yeah. Because there's a chord from Hard Day's Night, which yeah. begins it, right? Yeah. And so you use music in a sort of knowing way, as well as a kind of romantic, if you like, way. Yeah. There's a sort of knowing yeah. quality too, right? Yeah. Well, that's what samples do. They're cynic dogs, aren't they? They're kind of like, and they just bring in the entirety of all relations, you know. And the more kind of reductive it is, the more effective that is. But also in that piece, it was going to a Joy Division gig. Yeah. That was a sort of trigger, but actually finding a bit of footage of that Joy Division gig. Yeah. Which kind of triggered off the whole work, right? Yeah, Is that right? that's right, yeah. Well, it was audio. It was just someone on YouTube had put up the, the audio of, you know, and I'd bore people to death with that anecdote all the time, you know, because I was like 15. It was a matinee. Eric's, the nightclub that did it, used to do a, a matinee performance for under-18s. So we were all kids watching Joy Division. And I just, you know, I just thought there's no record of it. And then 30, 40 years later, someone had made a recording and it materialized on YouTube. And I just, yeah, that kind of kicked off the whole idea. Is it all out there? You know, is every experience I ever had, can I find recordings of that, you know? And then that sort of triggered a whole, it's like Proust's Madeline or whatever, you know, that, that whole idea of that was the kernel for a whole series of other images, other sounds that you yeah. then assembled. And some of them we believe as kind of very directly autobiographical, but then others become almost fictions within the work, right? Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. I don't know. I mean, I was trying to rid myself of some shame, I guess, about certain things. So I, I, I was trying to use those kind of nostalgic pleasure spots to smuggle in some I guess I was too afraid to do it very nakedly so I could hide behind a lot of those artifacts that I knew people would respond to but I could still talk about what I wanted to talk but I could kind of slightly camouflage it I guess in terms of the music devices that you use within your work, I'm always intrigued by the fact that you hear auto-tune techniques, you know, yeah. sort of familiar vocal technology and music. In the most recent film, in Carry Me Into the Wilderness, there's elements of that, plus the elements of sort of vocoder that reminded me of Autobahn by Kraftwerk. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're using musical devices in a kind of, is it a piece of music? Is it art in a way that sits between those two conditions? Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, a lot of this has come from, I do a show on NTS, a regular monthly show, so... This is a sort of online radio station. Exactly, yeah. It's an online radio station, comes out of London and LA. And I've been doing a regular spot on that for about five years now. So it's it's been a big influence. You know, every month I have to put together an hour's worth of not just music, but it's a sound collage, I guess. That's what I usually do. When I made that piece, the new piece, I was thinking of that in terms of I wanted to hear it it was almost for the show. And the reason that I used like auto-tune and 
vocoder and all the rest of it is I, at the beginning of doing NCS, I just played everything from my past. I basically played a lot of hardcore, UK garage, jungle, whatever, all the way back to like post-punk that I began with. And then I ran out, uh, you know, I ran out of everything that I had. So I started listening to like contemporary music, you know, and having to, to find it because I didn't know because I was a middle-aged man by then. And I didn't know where these where this music was. But through the help of NTS, I sort of found ways of accessing it. And the music I've ended up liking is, I don't know what you call it. It's kind of like, there's a book, there's a really good book called Neon Scream. He's describing it as kind of vocal psychedelia. So he's talking about people like Young Thug. It's kind of stuff coming out of trap, but it's like, it's much weirder. And they're doing a lot of things with their voice. And one of the things that you hear is a kind of, where they're trying to sort of say something directly, but through all these distortions. I mean, Kanye did it. Kanye does it mm. at the end of Runway. There's a beautiful passage at the end of that where he's kind of like just wailing, but it's all crushed and, and auto-tuned. You know, it's, what, it's how I was just trying to clumsily describe Dream English Kid. It's like, I want to say this stuff. I want to tell this stuff. But I guess, one, I'm too embarrassed to do it nakedly. And two, I guess I'm suspicious of the idea of any kind of like very direct, authentic way of speaking, you know that's very immediate. So it has to be mediated in order for me to feel like it's real. I don't want to get into some horrible postmodern paradox, but that's what it is for me. And it's, so it's like the more it's slathered in this stuff, the more authentic I feel I can be. Let's talk about literature then. Which writers or poets do Whoa, you return to? Blimey. I kind of, I gave up reading. <laughs> I struggled sleeping. So I have a Kindle and I just buy endless kind of horror books so that's all i really read at the moment is just horror this helps you get to sleep and it actually helps me get to sleep i know i find it very comforting it's like watching a horror film is the same i think it's because it returns me to like my 14 15 year old self you know that's my comfort blanket and then you know because of my nature i become obsessed with these things and, and i've become very one-tracked so I, I find it hard to, to read anything else. I mean, the honest answer would be, what author do I return to? <laughs> It'd be Stephen King. Right. You know, that'd, be the, that'd be the very honest answer. But I don't know how much there is to say about that. One of the things that has been documented about your work has been that you had this very curious relationship with critical theory. Yes. And in the one sense, you found it a kind of seductive, but on the other hand, you rejected it. Yeah. And that seems to have informed the work in various ways. Yeah. But also, as I say, through that sort of rejection of it to a degree, you took on some of the principles or ideas within it and then explored them through different languages, effectively. Yeah. Yeah, it's not that I'm against critical theory. It's just, well, for me, it, it, it was just very prescriptive, but also I was, you know, I was intimidated by it. That's why I talk about that, because I, I just found it very intimidating. And sometimes with teaching it, I think it's, it, it seemed helpful to tell all the people that you know you you found it difficult you know so it's just it's just on that level but um I have an enormous library at home like stupid because I stupidly took someone's advice which was whenever you see a book that you find interesting just buy it so I did and now I've just got this overflow of books and you know I'd say 80% of them are critical you know I read a lot about music and sound I read a lot about the internet, I read a lot about gender. So, they, they, you know, I do pick these things up, but I no longer am able to sit down with a book and read it. 
I just don't have the time to devote myself to kind of books in that way anymore. With the kids and everything, to mm. sit down and just read a, a kind of difficult book, you know. Let's talk about other media. And I think there's an obvious answer to this question, but what other media influence <laughs> your work? Yeah, I've kind of said it already, haven't I, sort of? Yeah, YouTube. There's a thing that I watched from a while ago. It's still going now called YouTube Poops, <laughs> which is very much in the spirit of Trip to the Moon. It's It's kind of, they just take things that they find on YouTube and then just distort it and make it stupid. TikTok, like I say, I see things on TikTok that I find mind-blowing, you know, particularly these strange kind of like potted lectures. I don't know if you've seen any mm. of them. Or just the edits, just the, the creativity of the edits are just... I mean, I genuinely mean this. It's not. It's not. Um, it's not Gordon Brown on Desert Island is yeah, saying not, he likes the Arctic monkeys. Yeah, or you know? whatever. I'm not trying to be hip. Like I like the new piece I made, this Carry On Into the Wilderness. But I just look at TikTok and find that their edits and their creativity is like outstripping mine. It's like it's like fuck. I don't know how you did that. I don't know how you. I don't know how you came up with that because I couldn't. So again, this back to this kind of competitive envy thing. So I find that a lot of that on TikTok. Is there a particular discipline in your daily working life that you see as an essential ritual? Um, tea. <laughs> I drink massive amount of tea. Did I say this earlier about stimulants? So that was always part of the ritual. Cigarettes and a drink or whatever, mostly cigarettes. And now that's switched to tea. Tea and biscuits. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the classic British ritual. Well, it's just, I don't know. I was just thinking a bit, a bit you know, Georgie O'Keefe never taught like that about <laughs> how she gets down to the studio. But then the kids nick the biscuits, so I don't even get to have them. Yeah. If you could live with one work of art, what would it be? I had this obsession with icons. It has to be, there's one in the British Museum I kept going back to, which is the one I, I was originally going to work with, but I, I didn't. it didn't pan out. And it's St. Jerome in the Wilderness, which was once owned by Ruskin, by John Ruskin. And it's, it's lovely. It's a beautiful little thing. St. Jerome in kind of, in red robes, nursing a, a lion. Have you seen that Instagram account where they talk about medieval animals that are wrong? Yeah. Yeah. So it's like one of them. It's a kind of lionish creature. And then this kind of very nice early landscape behind them. And that, and that kind of non-perspectival church or citadel that sits on a hill, which I always like. Yeah, that, so that's lovely. I'd love to have that. A Klazowski. There's a particular Pierre Klazowski that I find beguiling in all the right ways, which is called Robert Cessois. It's just his wife, Robert, sitting on the edge of the bed. She's wearing this kind of red blouse, but there's these two kind of ghostly hands kind of hovering around her, like a kind of aura. Um, I guess it's the enigma of it that attracts me. Is Klazowski Baltus's brother? Yes. Yeah. And he was a philosopher, but made drawings with coloured pencils. And... I guess if you first saw them, you'd think they were a bit clunky. They're sort of naturalistic, but wrong. I guess I like them in the same way I like icons. It's like, they're not anti-naturalistic, but they're, they're not interested 
in kind of realism or, or naturalism in any form. So I like that. And then, do you know Louise Bourgeois' tree drawings? Have you ever seen them? The drawings she made of trees. She did like a series of trees. I don't think I have seen nah, them. They're no. fantastic. They're like these, how would you describe them? They look very edible. Again, they, you know, they're not naturalistic, but they feel tree-like. They're kind of essential, I guess. There's some, there's some kind of essential treeness to them. So I'd love to have one of those. And then the last one is a more obvious one. I would still have Jeff Coons' bunny. I was interested <laughs> whether you were going to say Coons in the sort of contemporary yeah. artist you most admire, because it, like so many people have quite a vexed relationship with Coons. Exactly, yeah. Is your sort of relationship with his work vexed, or do you still admire what he's doing now, or is it just that work? Or It's just that work. I mean, in a way, the mystery's gone. I mean, what I liked about the bunny was it's its flawlessness that is the attraction for me. It's like it's absolutely flawless in that you can't see any hand in it at all or even any machine in it. It's like the perfect commodity. It's like Marx's description of like a, a table, a wooden table, right? It's like, it just appears like as an idea. So I just think it's a beautiful representation of capitalism. And I think he was good at that, at that stage. And then I'm not, I'm not interested in him now, but I think as an expression of late 20th century capitalism, the, the bunny to me is, is iconic, you know? It is an icon, quite literally, you know, so... I'd have it. <laughs> I would definitely have that. And lastly, what's art for? You know, the reason I make art is, I mean, it's the best tool I have for, like, being able to, like, grasp things or understand things. I wouldn't say it's therapeutic, but it's, it allows me to approach things in a way that is much more in the round. I guess this is in terms of what we've talked about. You know, I've gone from a path of, from Peter Housen to, like, Klazowski or 14th century iconography. And, and art has allowed me that enrichment. There's a sort of Gnosticism that I think excites me about art. Yeah, it's, it's Gnostic, I would say. I think Gnosticism outside of art is bad. <laughs> but within art, it's a good path. It's a productive path and it's a, and it's a shared path, you know. Mark. Thank you very much. All right, good. Thank you very much. Mark Leckie is at the Cabinet Gallery in London until the 30th of April. And as I mentioned, you can find all his latest works as well as previous pieces like Fiorici Made Me Hardcore and Dream English Kid on Mark's YouTube channel. And that's it for this episode. Please subscribe to A Brush With wherever you're listening and do give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And do also subscribe to our other podcast, The Week in Art, a deep dive into the latest big art world stories, the top shows and the key issues every Friday. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. Production, editing and sound design on A Brush With are by David Clack and the producers of the art newspaper podcasts are Julia Mahalska, Amy Dawson and Henrietta Bentel. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and a big thank you to Mark Leckie. See you next week. Bye for now. A Brush With is sponsored by Bloomberg Connects. Download Bloomberg Connects today and discover cultural institutions on demand.